Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Guys, that was beautiful. Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Glad you're here. Let's get to it. Genesis chapter 1 is where we find ourselves today. For the next couple months, we will be working our way through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. We've decided to break this monumental task and book up into several different units. And so we're going to go through the first 11 chapters and handle the beginning of the 12th chapter and God calling Abram. And starting a people for himself, and then we'll take a break, and then uh, do something in the New Testament, and then get back to Genesis in units over the course of probably the next couple years. So I anticipate that uh, we'll be back and forth in and out of Genesis, and we'll cover all 50 chapters in the next, uh, in the next say, maybe two years or so, interspersed with other books from the Bible, New Testament. I've been waiting to say this for a long time. If you don't have a Bible, I really want you to, to find, uh, use one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you. There's two types of Bibles uh, that we have because they ran out of the previous version that we had. So one cover is kind of more shiny brown, and the other cover is kind of dull brown. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible and keep it as your own. And this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 1 in the shiny Bible on page one. And on the less shiny, more dull Bible, you can find Genesis chapter one on page one as well. As always, if you don't have a Bible, you're, willing to, you're, you're more than welcome to keep that Bible and let that be our gift to you. Well, as we begin this uh, monumental task of working through this first book of the Bible, I want us to recognize that we have some challenges. First off, the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch, were written by Moses. Now, Moses was not alive at the beginning. Moses doesn't show up until much later on. And so God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to write Genesis. And so God is filling Moses in on Some details of what happened in the beginning. Notice I said some details, not all of the details. We as modern readers in the scientific age have to realize that we're coming to this ancient text with some biases. Biasi. What's the plural of bias? Whatever. Didn't sound right when I said biases, but you get the point. We are coming to this text with with questions... That quite frankly, the Holy Spirit of God, when he inspired Moses to write it, isn't really that concerned with answering. This text is not as concerned with the age of the earth or scientific processes as we are. It is concerned with displaying the grandeur and the glory and the preeminence of our Creator God. That's not to say that that it is not sufficient. And it's not to say that science now sort of lays on top of this text. No, science subordinates itself to these words. 
These words are not an exhaustive account of God's creative work, but they are a sufficient account of God's creative power for us to know and see and worship God. So this text may not tell us all that we want to know, but it tells us all that we need to know. And let's just enter into this series in Genesis with some humility. Maybe you are here and you were invited by a Christian friend and you know yourself not to be a believer. And you are maybe, one of the things that has tripped you up in coming to faith in Christ is just how the Bible and the creation account jives with modern day science. And one of the things that you are critical about Christianity for is the presuppositions of faith that we have. And I admit heartily that we are are coming to this text presupposing faith. In fact, Wayne read it for us from Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We weren't there. Neither was Moses. Can I also say that if you are knowing yourself not to be a Christian and not convinced of the creation account, regardless of what you may feel about the age of the earth, that you also are presupposing science. I think it takes faith regardless, because none of us were there. We are all coming to this text with presuppositions, and therefore I think we should come to this text with much humility. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then let's work our way through this glorious text. Lord, as we come now to your word, we confess that we need help. We we are clouded with our our own weaknesses, our own mortality our humanity, and our sin. And I pray that as we come to this monumental passage, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe. Lord, the point today, and the reason that you wrote Genesis 1 and 2, and this whole book, was not to prove yourself in a, an empirical debate to modern man. You wrote this to reveal yourself to your creation so that we would fall down in awe and worship. So Lord, would we would we worship you this morning as we read the account of how you brought all things to be out of nothing and And ultimately, God, I pray that this would not just be a creation message, but this would be a gospel message, that even as we look at the first chapter of Genesis before the fall, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story, and we know, Lord, that very soon things go awry. And this creation that you created very good needs a Savior. And so, Lord, even as we look at your creation, give us an eye to the cross I pray that Christians would be encouraged and unbelievers that are present with us this morning, that you'd give them eyes to see and a heart to believe, ears to hear the beautiful news of Jesus Christ. And I pray it in his name.
Amen. Well, let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to stop along the way and make some points. Lots of notes today. And if you are a note taker and you midway through this message become frustrated with me because I'm moving too quickly, uh, we will put all of these notes on the um, internet, on our website, that will be posted on our sermons page with the audio of this message. And after we conclude our, our time in the Word, we will celebrate the gospel with three folks from Crosspoint being baptized and proclaiming the gospel through their baptism. These are some of the most famous words ever written. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's stop right there and notice something about God. Here's the first thing that I want you to notice, and it's point number one, and have several subpoints underneath it. And this is maybe the simplest and clearest point that we've ever had in a sermon at Crosspoint in our almost nine-year history. And the, the point is this, point number one, God is God. God is God. I want us to see a few attributes about God that just jump out to us from the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. Some of these, verse, some of these attributes are called incommunicable attributes of God. It means that he doesn't share these. Nobody, no other being, no other created thing has these attributes. Only God has these attributes. There are many more, but there's just five here that I want us to see about how God is God. Number one, God is self-sufficient. Before anything was, God is. God was. He has eternally existed. He is self-sufficient. He's independent. He doesn't need anything to complete him. The theological term, try this one out in the office on Monday. The theological term is the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. The aseity of God. That means that God is completely self-existent and self-sufficient and has no need of creation or humanity or anything outside of himself. God did not create the universe and everything in it and the world and people because he was lonely or because he needed our fellowship. Like the Trinity did not get bored. It, it was not the last scene of Jerry Maguire where, where Tom Cruise Cruz bursts into the living room when the, the girl is there with her support group and he, and he says, you complete me, right? That's not what God was thinking when he created. He is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need us to serve him. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, Paul writes these words on his beautiful sermon there in Greece on Mars Hill. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, has enjoyed perfect fellowship with no beginning and no end. In fact, think about this. And Chris McGuire, when he opened us up with a call to worship, and in his prayer, he, he hit on this. And, oh, I just, I mean, I just wanted a shadow box down there in the front row. That before God was creator, he was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has eternally pre-existed. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospels. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is the self-sufficient, independent God. God is also, number two there, under God is good, God is eternal. Revelation 1 verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 says this, and this is God speaking through the prophet to the nation of Israel. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, let's just think about this for a second. Think about for a moment, just grasping the timelessness, the, the eternal nature of God. Of all the difficult truths in the Bible, and we do our best not to shy away from any of them here. I mean, in fact, when we get to tough questions, you, I'm sure you'll have some tough questions. We'll talk about them. That's why we work through the Bible, so we can't avoid tough stuff. We, we deal with what's in the text. But I think one of the most difficult, maybe the most difficult truth to wrap our brains around is the timelessness, the eternal nature of God. We don't don't even have a category, we don't even have a paradigm, a dimension to fit that in. You know that Apple commercial that's advertising the new iPhone S and they put the little cord on the bottom, you know? And I think one of the other cell phone companies is making fun of that being a big deal, you know? And the, the guy's like, wow, that blew my mind and we got the cord on the bottom. Like it's mind blowing, man. I mean, we quibble about God's relationship with evil. We quibble about things like predestination. All of that stuff is like cornflakes compared to the timelessness of God. We, friends, are on the inside of the circle of creation. He's outside of it and over it. We are on the line of eternity and time, and God stands above it and stretches it out like a string. God is eternal. Thirdly, another incommunicable attribute of God is He is unchangeable. He never changes. Psalm 102 
Verse 25 and 27 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. James 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Just think about the beauty of God's never changing nature. God never wakes up in a grumpy mood. God is never unpredictable. Right? God is Always the same. Hebrews says of Jesus in chapter 13, I believe it is, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is unchangeable. Dwell on the beauty of that attribute of God. Fourthly, God is all-powerful. We could read, well, we could spend all morning reading verses on this, but suffice it to say, just one will do. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God is all-powerful. He he is sovereign. Do you know what the word sovereign means? Sovereign, here's just a little... A little note card definition for you for the word sovereign. I know we throw that word out around a lot at Crosspoint. Here's what the word sovereign means, I think, in just kind of a, an everyday way sense. It means that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, for whatever purpose he wants. God is God, and he's all-powerful. And that brings us to the, to the fifth thing that I want us to see among many attributes of God that we are leaving out is that he is, of all these things, he is also infinite, but he's also personal. This is mind-blowing. This God who is transcendent, who's outside of time, who stands above creation, who is timeless, is also in time. He's imminent. He's personal. Because I don't want us to look at all of these attributes of God and develop kind of a of a distance from him. This is not to say that God does not delight in his creation, and in particular, his people. He has determined in his grand creation that we can and in fact should bring him glory and joy. So remember, we started this off by saying that God doesn't need us, and he's self-sufficient, and the Trinity wasn't bored or lacking anything. But yet... God, in his beauty and glory, and as an overflow of his character, decides to bring glory to himself by creating a world that will bring glory to himself through his saving them by his son's work on the cross. And this was all planned before the foundations of the earth. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. Starting halfway through verse 11, it says that, listen to this verse, goodness gracious, He works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Isaiah 62, 3 and 4 says, you, listen to this, you 
This is, this is what God thinks of you if you are a Christian. He's writing specifically to his people, Israel, but this truth becomes a reality for God's people of all time. This is what God thinks of you if you are in Christ, if you've turned away from trusting in yourself, you've turned away from counter pleasures, counterfeit pleasures, and you're trusting in Christ's righteousness, and you are a child of God. This verse is what God thinks of you. Isaiah 62, verse 3 and 4, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. Think about that. The creator of all that is, who has always been, who is all sufficient, decides for the increase of his glory to delight in you, Christian. Zephaniah the prophet tells us that he sings over us. Think about that. You ever sang a child to sleep? How, how beautiful that moment is. Think about this amazing God singing over you, Christian friend. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. (laughs) This God, this indescribable God, is a personal God who sings over his people. A few points of application before we keep reading a little bit more. One is that I think this should tell us that God is free and not bound by anything. God is free and he's not bound by anything. He's not bound by the creation that he made. He's not bound by the laws that he established to govern it. So it's not a problem for him to cause the sun to stand still, right? It's not a problem for him to cause a donkey to talk. It's not a problem for him to cause iron in the form of an axe head to float on the water. These are things that happened in the Old Testament. And it's certainly not a problem for him to conquer death and sin and the grave and cause Christ to come back from it. He is not bound. He's not bound by creation. He's not bound by devils and demons and evil. Even that is under his authority and his providence and his plan. And he's not bound by your will. People want to talk about free will all the time. Friends, our will is enslaved. The fall wrecked us. We'll talk about that in Genesis 3. I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, you can't just preach Genesis 1 without getting into the next chapters. But God overcomes the stubborn will of sinful people that are running away from him. And he's bound by nothing. Two, another application that I think we should realize, and this is convicting as I've been thinking about it this week and looking at Genesis 1, is that we should pray bigger prayers. I mean, if this is the way God really is, we should pray bigger prayers and have bigger faith because God is able. Listen to this. Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26. 
To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number? The host meaning the heavenly bodies. He's talking about the stars in the universe. Who brings them brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I, I was as I was preparing for this, I was I was uh, reading about some some just some facts of the universe. And astronomers estimate, speaking of the number of stars, because this verse in Isaiah is telling us that God numbers them and he names them, that just in our galaxy, there are 400 billion stars, they estimate, in the Milky Way galaxy. And our little solar system is just kind of on one little outer arm of that galaxy. So 400 billion stars in one tiny little galaxy. And there are, they estimate, 125 billion galaxies, probably more. I read somewhere else where it was maybe 170. But let's just say conservatively, there are 125 billion galaxies of which our little tiny Milky Way is just one of 125 billion. So then they extrapolate those numbers and they estimate that the number of stars is 10 billion trillions. I'm getting dizzy even thinking about it. 10 billion trillions, and that's just what we can see from some Hubble telescope or something on some mountain in Los Angeles. (laughs) And Isaiah says that God has named one of them, every one of them. And he hasn't named them by sector, like sector B4, number 28. He's named them all. Friends, if God is this great and glorious, we should pray bigger prayers and have bigger faith because God is able and all-powerful. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Now listen, I, I confess, I think my prayers fluctuate between missing the point on this. I think either they lack the faith that corresponds with a God this big, or they're so big and so general that they really don't, don't have the faith that this truth calls for, you know? And I'm just enough of a savvy pastor and theologian that when I get specific with my prayers, I add on a little tagline to save God from embarrassment should he, you know, not come through like I want him to. Does anybody else do that? Good. I'm glad I'm not the only weak Christian among us. God is God. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read a little bit more. Because I want us to see, and you can put this point up there on the screen, that God creates by the power of his word. Point number two, God creates by the power of his word. And so let's look at 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice the emphasis on a God who speaks. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Read verse 5 with me. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So what happens is God is separating the light from the darkness just by his word. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So here in the second day, God separates the sky from the sea. And God said in verse 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So on the third day, God separates the earth from the sea. And he causes vegetation to sprout up from the land. And this is before the fall. So I'm assuming that vegetables tasted good at this point. (laughs) Sorry, Mama. In verse 14, now we see this canvas that has been prepared start to be filled. So day four corresponds, is the paint that goes on the canvas of day one. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let, them be lights in the ex- and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the true, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And so on the fourth day, he takes the sun and the moon and he puts them into the canvas that he painted on day 
that he prepared on day one. Notice that he doesn't call them by name. He just refers to them as the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night. Because he, I think, knows that if he names something that glorious, a heavenly body that glorious, that man will instantly idolize it and worship it, as we see pagan cultures doing at this time. In fact, even our English language is full of idolatrous language. Yesterday was Saturday. Saturn Day. Today is Sunday for the sun, and tomorrow is Monday, Moon Day. And God is not even giving these heavenly bodies names because they can't compete with him in his glory. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. On that fifth day, God paints the canvas that he prepared on the second day, the sky and the sea, and fills it with birds and fish. And do you know that there are fish in the depths of the sea and oceans that we have never plumbed the depths of, that we have never discovered? When I was a little boy, my dad would take us deep sea fishing off the coast of San Diego. And one of my great childhood memories is that we would put a line in the water. And I mean, that's just a few, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 feet deep. And everybody would pull up a line and every fish would look different. And that's just 20 or 30 feet deep. Imagine the depths of the sea creatures and the, the, undiscovered, the undiscovered inhabitants of the sea created as a display of the grandeur of our God. Incidentally, the last time we went deep sea fishing, a week after that, one of the boats that we were on was capsized by a California humpback whale. And everybody had to swim back to the sea, or to the, to the shore. A little traumatic for me. I never got on a boat again when I read about that in the paper. <laughs> Day six now, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And now after he's created all of the animals and all of the sea, God turns his attention to his special creation. In verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every 
every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now let's read about the seventh day in the first few verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God creates by the power of his word. A couple questions that I want us to handle before we look at several points under this great grand point of God creating by his word. A question that comes up anytime we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2 is, what is the age of the earth? I think it's beyond the scope of our purposes here to get into the nitty-gritty of the debates that have been raging for decades amongst Christians and amongst non-Christians about the age of the earth. Let me just summarize for you that there are There are two views, and one view has several different variations. There are Christians who believe that the earth is young, anywhere from 6 to maybe 10,000 years old, or maybe on the upper limit of that, 15,000 years. And those Christians would hold to a literal reading of the days in Genesis. The Hebrew word for day can mean both a a 24-hour day, and it can also mean a period of time. And so the Christians that read it more literally, would view uh, these days, these six days of creation as as literal 24-hour days. Then there are other Christians who love Jesus and love the Bible, who think that the earth is, is very old, depending maybe millions of years or maybe many, many more. And there are several different variations of of views within old earth creationists. There are people that think that the word day in Genesis 1 and 2 refers not to a literal 24-hour period, but to an, an age or an epoch of time. There are those that believe that there is a gap between the first few verses of Genesis, where when we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the earth and it was without form and void, and then in verse 3 it says that God creates there and prepares the, the sort of the the world that's sort of just molding and sort of like unformed clay, that there could be an undetermined amount of time, a gap there. And others believe that the whole language of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is analogous language. It's a kind of literary framework that just shows us. It's not intending to show us anything about timing, but it's just showing us this metaphor of God's creative work and the pattern and the canvas that he has painted for work and rest. And it leaves room for a long period of time. There are other variations of old earth views. Can I just, can I just give you um, some, some thoughts about um, what I think? I think I kind of fluctuate between the two, honestly. And I don't think that, uh, that whether you believe the earth is young or old, as long as you believe that God is the creator of it and you would reject evolution, I think that is within the bounds of faithful Christianity. So I think what we can say 
about Genesis 1 and 2 is that it, I don't think it requires a literal 24-hour interpretation, but I don't think it precludes it as well. And so two exhortations to people in either camp. If you're a young earth advocate, don't be intimidated by science or scared of it. If you're an old earth creation advocate, I would just encourage you to beware of falling into a sort of subtle anti-supernaturalism. I would encourage you to beware of falling into, I think, what can be a very dangerous trap of sort of assuming that science trumps the word of God. If God did create the world in six literal days, and the earth is very young, and the universe is very young, it's very possible that God could have created it with age. What does a Christian need to believe about creation in order to be faithful to historic Christianity? I think two things that I see. One, I think that you need to realize and believe and affirm that God created everything out of nothing. We're going to talk about that in a a second. Nothing existed before him. There's nothing that exists outside of God. So I think you need to affirm that God created everything out of nothing. Secondly, I think you need to affirm that Adam and Eve were real historical people. And we're going to read about Adam and Eve more particularly, talk about mankind and marriage next Sunday when we get into Genesis 2. But I think that the whole Bible is pinning its logic. The whole logic of the cross and the gospel is pinning its logic on the reality of a real person who is directly created by God, Adam and Eve. In fact, That's the whole point of Paul's logic in Romans 5, and I don't have time to break this down for you right now, but in Romans chapter 5, Paul puts the weight of Christ's work for us on the literal Adam and Eve, the creation of a literal Adam and Eve, because he says that sin entered at a definitive point in time through two people who were really created, who were our covenant heads. They were our first parents, and we are in their line, and we bear their sin likeness, and then in Christ, who literally came and took on flesh, we, when we trust in him, bear his righteousness. And so if you have kind of a primordial evolution of mankind, and are no specific Adam and Eve and sin entering the world, Paul's argument of the gospel in Romans 5 falls apart. So I think you need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve. But let's look now at a few things about the creative power of God's word. Number one, as we mentioned, he creates out of nothing. This means that before God began to create the universe, nothing existed except God himself. He created his trinity. I think we, when we read the word God in the scriptures, it's instinctive for us to think of God the Father. But notice that the Spirit of God is present in verse 2. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in the New Testament, it fills in the picture for us a little bit and shows us that Jesus, God the Son, is, is the, like the executor of creation. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, speaking of Jesus now, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So God creates by the power of his word out of nothing. Notice also 
that he created the universe very good. Notice the clear order and symmetry of Genesis 1. Days 1 through 3 are like the form, and days 4 through 6 are like the fullness. 1 through 3 are like the canvas, and 4 through 6 are like the paint. And God creates a universe that is very good, and we're going to talk about this in a second. He didn't create the universe very good, and then all of something happens that he wasn't planning for, and Genesis 3 happens, and the Trinity says, Oh, snap, what do we do now? No, God created the universe very good. And then notice, I want you to see this. Number three, under this great point of God creating by the power of his word, is that the same power of God's word that created the universe also saves sinners. Think about this now. Here's a verse to memorize. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Think about how glorious the execution of God's power is in salvation. The same God who spoke 10 billion trillion stars into existence on one day. That same power of God's word calls a dead heart to come alive. And we treat salvation like it's just life 2.0. Oh, I used to have a less than optimal life, but now I've cleaned myself up and I'm going to church and I can have my best life now. Hogwash! God calls dead sinners to life through the same power of the same word that strung the universe into existence. God is talking through Paul in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham, who's this old man wrinkled up with an old wrinkled up wife, and he promised them years before that he would bring children to them, and they're laughing at God because they don't think he can do it. And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17, God says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. (laughs) God doesn't start with any raw material in the universe. He starts with nothing. And when he saves a person, he doesn't start with any raw material. Oh, this is a good batch of dough. I think he will work out and be a nice Christian. God doesn't sort through scraps of wood in the wreckage pile and pick out good wood to save. God starts the universe with nothing and God starts salvation with nothing. Nothing. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Be humbled by that, friend. Be humbled by that. That is the beginning of understanding the way things are. A few things of application here. I'm almost done. We should tremble at his word. If it's that powerful, shouldn't we tremble at it? But many Christians treat it like it's a rabbit's foot. 
or a formula that gets you what you want. Secondly, an application of God's powerful word that creates the universe and Christians is that we should know his word because it brings salvation. And he brings this salvation by deploying his word through his people. We now, as people in this day, in this age, after Christ's resurrection, have this wonderful word of the gospel, this beautiful news that the God who created the heavens and the earth created mankind as the pinnacle of his creation, allowed for and planned for the rebellion and the fall of that mankind, that in their fall separated themselves irrevocably to death and eternal condemnation forever against the good and holy God. But God in his kindness does not leave us there. He comes to us in the form of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and he lives the perfect life that none of us have lived where we rebelled and offended the eternal holy God of the universe. Jesus completely obeys him as a real man and then lays down his life on the cross as a perfect substitute and his substitute, his, his life, his sacrifice is sufficient because he's not just a perfect man, he's also all God. And he satisfies God's justice and God's wrath against a sinful, rebellious, dead mankind. And then he defeats death and hell and the grave and rises again and is now the king seated on high and commands all people everywhere to repent. And now every person in this room and every person in this world has the only hope, the only hope that they have is trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Friends, that is the gospel. Do you know that gospel? Can you explain that gospel? Because God has determined to deploy that gospel through his people. And God uses that gospel to be the light that shines in the heart of a dead sinner and causes them to come alive. Imagine that, friends. We are like the PVC pipe through which the water of the Holy Spirit, the great saving power of the Word of God comes through us to be sprayed on dead hearts and bring them to life. Do you know the good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners? And can you share it? If you don't, we as pastors would love to talk to you, help you, equip you, give you resources, sit down with you. I think you can be a Christian and just not be good at just sharing that in everyday life. Don't be okay with that. Thirdly and finally, God, and this is where we can't just stay in Genesis 1, can we? We have to, we have to fast forward a little bit, don't we? God created having planned the end from the beginning. Friends, we're going to read in a couple weeks Genesis 3 where everything takes a downward spiral. But it's important for us to realize that, as I said, you know, God didn't create and on the seventh day he rested. And by the way, he didn't rest because he was tired, right? It's not like God ran an ultra marathon like some of the crazy men in this church do. Like we got guys in here that run these 100-mile races, which I'm not, I don't quite understand that. But It's not like God passed the finish line on the sixth day and you know, collapsed into some medical trailer and got an IV and a Gatorade. So he's not resting because he's tired. God is 
when you see God resting, it means that God transitions from creating to ruling and reigning. He doesn't stop working. God is always working for our good and his glory. And God has created the end from the beginning, having a plan. Nothing sneaks up on God. And so there's two things that I want you to see as we move forward in Genesis. And we see that this creation, he created good. No, not just good, very good. And very quickly, it will take a downward spiral that even this God planned for and allowed and is over and has considered and prepared for. First thing I want you to realize in this point is that nothing is outside of his control and eternal plan. Evil and sin did not sneak up on God. Therefore, friends, let's take this from the cosmic 30,000 foot level and let's apply it to where the rubber meets the road in our lives. Therefore, nothing in the lives of his people is outside of his good, tender, fatherly care. The star, the 10 billion trillion star that's on the edge of existence that he has named that he knows that he sets in that place friends if he names the outer star he knows the number of hairs on your head as Jesus says in Matthew 10 and a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless he knows that he loves you and cares for his people with fatherly tenderly care and nothing happens to them outside of his good tender care listen to this historic confession of the church. It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith, written in the times of the Reformation around the 1500s by a cat. He was Dutch, but he should have been Italian because his first name is Guido. <laughs> Guido de Berez. And he wrote, along with some other people, his name got tacked on the end of it. I guess he, 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 got, he was the editor, I don't know. The Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 13, the doctrine of God's providence. Listen to these beautiful words. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, <laughs> did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet, God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn what only he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing, nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought, we rest knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable air of the Epicureans and philosophers of the day. 
who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Friends, these words are true. And I don't mean to read them with insensitivity towards the great trials and tragedies and pain that you may be experiencing in this room. But friends, think with me for a moment. Think with how unbiblically we view life. We treasure these 80 or 90 years as if they are all that there is. And when we do that, we blind ourselves to the way God views eternity in life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 that, that, the, that the things that we're facing now will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in the sons and daughters of God. Do you think that your horrible situation is outside of that truth? Do you think that the Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write those words didn't know about the worst of evils that would be committed against God's people? No, friends. Is this difficult to think about God's relationship and providence over all things, including evil? Yes. Do I mean this to be a doctrinal cold statement? No. Friends, friends, I plead with you to look up and see the greatness of our God Friends, how glorious must heaven be that Paul could write those words and even the worst and most horrible and despicable of evils that has been committed against God's people will one day pale in comparison to the glory and we'll look back and say, Oh God, 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 you are good. Nothing is outside of his control. And secondly, and finally, the gospel has always been his plan. God planned redemption before creation, before the foundation of the world. Listen to these words that I conclude with in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Christian, worship your great and glorious God. Unbeliever, dear friend, I am so glad that you're here today. In kindness and love, I encourage you to look up 
consider and bow your heart to the one who made you and the one who has made provision for your rebellion against him and to turn away from feeble pleasures and counterfeit joy and pathetic self-righteousness and look to Christ the Son of God crucified before the foundations of the earth for all who would ever turn from themselves and turn in faith to him. Look even now and be made new. Be recreated by our great creator God. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to watch this glorious gospel which you determined from the beginning of time to be your plan, as we see it displayed in the baptism of three members of this church. Lord, would you cause us to worship you with worship that is due the creator and maker of all things. And would you cause these words and this display of the gospel the, the display of the gospel in these waters of baptism would you cause it to bring life and faith to dead hearts in this room. And just as you created the universe out of nothing would you create a new heart today? out of nothing to a friend that has come into this room not believing? Would you give them repentance and faith so that they can turn away from themselves and turn in faith to you? And would you give them life in Jesus? And would you plant them in this local church or another gospel Bible-believing church and would you cause them to grow in ever-increasing likeness? And would the rest of their lives glorify you and not themselves? Which is true joy. Lord, I pray that you would do these things for the glory of your name and for the eternal joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.